My name is Jack Wheatley. I'm a junior at Michigan State University, and I'm a social relations and policy and public policy major at James Madison College, and this is Underground Undergrad. Before we really get into your degree, can you talk a little bit about what James Madison College is, just because we haven't had anybody from James Madison College on yet? So at Michigan State, there are three residential colleges, uh, the College of Arts and Humanities, uh, or the Residential College of Arts and Humanities, I might say, ARCA. Then there's the uh, Lyman Briggs, and then there's James Madison. And so James Madison was created in 1967 as a public affairs school, uh, and it started off with, and don't quote me on this, even though I'm being recorded, it started off with uh, only two majors, I believe, um, and then it, it expanded, or maybe three, and then it expanded to its current uh, number of majors for, um, but I was drawn into it um, because as a public affairs school, it cre- you know it kind of uh, introduces interdisciplinary approaches uh, and different perspectives into political thought and public affairs. So anything from uh, administration to education to understanding American domestic policy to international relations. There's so much that's in the school that there's just you know you can pick from so much. Do you think you gain anything from, like, living in the same hall as everybody else that has that same broader focus? Yeah, it's funny because it's, you know, I really had a hard time uh, adjusting to college. I had never lived away from my parents, and I had never shared a room. And I actually love uh, my roommate who I lived with, and we're still um, friends. But I was having a hard time, you know, not being able to finish long days of classes with so much social interaction uh, and then coming back to a room that I shared that wasn't my own and not feeling like I had, you know, privacy. And so I was really anxious uh, for the first few months of school, just kind of, you know, uh, very kind of strange from what I thought I kind of was in high school, which was like really extroverted. I, I became like really introverted at the beginning of the year. Um, but being in Case Hall with a bunch of the other students, it allowed you to kind of create relationships and friendships and jokes about, you know, being in a residential college in one building with everyone. You're allowed to create a community and uh, this sort of bond with all these other kids that are going through the same thing. Because in James Madison, you take two courses your uh, first semester, MC 111, which is your uh, standard Madison introductory writing course. And then you take MC 201, which is the first time you're introduced to like the actual readings and the way that you to you know analyze a certain case study and to write and to examine these these broad kind of issues and it depends on you know any of the professors is going to bring a different perspective into that class but you know there's kind of this funny uh i don't want to say stigma like it's just this funny fear that i think that upperclassmen kind of put or like you know, just place on to freshmen about like, this is the weed out class, this is this class. And there's so much like, you know, everyone, everyone's a JMA in the first uh, freshman year. So a JMA, I don't know if I can say this, is either a James Madison all-star and it's, um, you know, uh, more clean version or James Madison asshole. They're the same thing, but basically it just means a person who, you know, talks about James Madison all the time, just whatever. And and there's jokes about like, you know, if I talk too much in class, I'll say to my friend like, oh God, I don't want to be a JMA. Or if I, you know, wrote too much on a discussion post or whatever, you know, the, the James Madison people listening to this be like, he's definitely a JMA. But, um, by you all like living together in the same hall, like you develop like a microculture that like a regular hall wouldn't have. If you, like if you live in Holden Hall, right? 
Like that's everyone's from all different kinds of majors is there. So there's still like that kind of micro culture and micro community. But the fact that you're all there and you're all just like jazzed about like public discourse, like it makes like a culture. <laughs> yeah, and there's... it's terrible. I mean, do not get me wrong. It is the worst. Every single person, including myself, everyone's trying to out woke each other out, uh, you know, brag about what, you know, the experiences is. Oh, I want to be a politician. I want to be a researcher, whatever. So there's always this sort of uh, freshman year performance that's put on to all the other students because, you know, you're you're in there and you're kind of told about how great this thing is. And so therefore you're kind of uh, making it out to be so much better. And then as you get on to your sophomore and junior years, you humble yourself and you start to realize, oh shit, this is, uh, this is definitely... Um, you know, more mundane and, and not something special that, you know, as a, as a freshman kid, you're kind of just, you know, thinking that it's all that. Uh, and you, you start to grow more intimate relationships with certain people you've had in classes. One of the cool things is, is, you know, like in freshman year, you're all in one dorm and all your classes are in the same place because in Case Hall on the third floor is where all of our classes were. So it's like you live on the first or the third floor or the sixth floor or whatever. And then you go to your classes. And then in the downtime, a lot of people like myself and my friends would study in the Case Hall study lounges. And so you'd kind of create relationships and bonds with other students who are, you know, rushing to finish an assignment or doing the readings or whatever. And you're kind of able to create friendships and relationships with people who are also going through the same struggle as you are as like a freshman who doesn't know what they're doing. Uh, and then as thing goes, things go on, at the end of your freshman year, uh, you kind of declare or just decide that this is the, the route that you want to take because in sophomore it's called your sophomore sequence which is like the classes that is you know dipping your feet into the field that you want to go into and a lot of times you know people change their major I changed my major um, in that time uh, but it allows you to kind of experiment with things like that but as you grow into your sophomore year you're able to kind of have you know I, I, I have made my best friendships out of classes that I've had um, you know, groups that I've been in and, you know, friendships I've made in the same classes. So it starts with our first sequence in, um, in SRP classes, and that kind of creates a little bond with some people. And then as you keep meeting with those same people over the years, and you're able to kind of experience and learn together, uh, you, you create kind of just a, a fun relationship with people in your, uh, in your own major, just because you spend so much time together. So, you know, social relations and policy uh, is able to kind of um, introduce a wide variety of domestic and public issues in the United States through the lens of uh, social, racial uh, identities and the uh, comparative uh, understandings of how these groups over time have come to create themselves. Uh, so that's, you know, uh, historical analyses, uh, public policy analyses, you kind of can take uh, you know, multiple factors of these certain, um, you know, identities and, and, and issues and create understandings of how uh, certain groups have formed over time, what historical thing happened in, in order to, you know, create this, this identity or create this, um, you know, any number of uh, social theory and social policy that can create understandings about, you know, wealth, poverty, uh, you know, pluralism, prejudice. You can, you can, really dive into certain subjects, but the, the beginning subject is basically how do certain groups and identities uh, relate with each other and change with each other over time. And that's kind of at the beginning, uh, and it deals with, you know, class, race, 
uh, ethnicity, gender, all of these things is, you know, intersectional in the studies that you choose in SRP. So it seems like the majority of your major is contextualizing history into modern political situations. Is that is that a good synthesis of ideas? Yeah, and I would say that, you know, for SRP specifically, in terms of the sequence, when you take your MC280, I believe, uh, that's going to be your first sequence class. And that's, you know, you're learning the concepts and methodological, you know, ideas of uh, how social relations and policy works at a foundational level. So like when I first took my first SRP class in sophomore year, uh, I had Professor Burns and he's a spectacular teacher and we learned, uh, you know, we read Marx, we read Durkheim, we read Foucault and Weber and all of these uh, theoretical, um, you know, foundations of social thought and social theory that kind of creates a ground level for the understanding of social groups. So when you get that foundational level of, you know, mechanical solidarity and, you know, functionalism and structuralism and post-structuralism, these ideas uh, you can interpret and put into a better lens uh, and grow from. In all of the humanities majors, and I'd I'd qualify this as a humanities major, there's, you learn so many isms and you study so many like old dudes who created their own ism. And it's so easy to just get lost in those isms and make them these like abstract thoughts that never make any real world application. But it seems like with your degree, the whole point is taking those isms and those abstract thoughts and seeing how they can actually be applied to create a foundation for public life and public Mm. policy. Yeah. And that's why we look at case studies is that we take, you know, contemporary social theory and social history, and then we take a certain case study. So like in my uh, social theory class in sophomore year, we read a book called Heat Wave about the 1995 Chicago heat wave and the public policy effects that went into it. And then the results of the failures of this system against uh, disenfranchised groups. And so you kind of read these very long uh, anthropological and sociological studies on certain communities, certain regions, certain you know ethnic groups, racial identities, and create a foundation or use the foundation that you would learn from your social theory and history, and then create a better understanding of how those groups form and change over time through different case studies. So you know we did one on the heat wave, and one of my other classes we had spent. Uh, a long time learning about just immigration and racial identity. So we learned about uh, Asian American racial identity over time, uh, how whiteness in, is constructed and, uh, you know, a, a critical race theory perspective and the idea that uh, white supremacy has been um, embedded in our system as a sort of uh, standard and uh, ground level that, you know, needs to be uh, disrupted and dismantled. And once you have an acknowledgement of that system, you can go forward. And, and so, you know, you create a certain depth of knowledge about uh, theories that, you know, can be applied on, on so many different levels. And I, I what I think is Im- important and why I didn't want to do PTCD is that I'm a straight white guy. And I was like, I don't want to spend my entire time learning about more straight white guys that I don't think uh, really deserve my attention as much as what I think is more important, which is, uh, you know, understanding how um, our society has been stratified along uh, racial and class lines uh, through very intentional uh, discriminatory patterns and um, 
um, in my writing course, what, what I kind of changed my mind into PT or in, from PTCD to SRP was we had read The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, which is about redlining, blockbusting, and just the uh, unbelievably widespread, uh, you know, gigantic uh, racial discrimination that created um, both the racial wealth gap in the United States, uh, but also was the foundation of the middle class because you have, you know, um, FDR creating the New Deal, uh, that was not uh, allowed access to almost uh, any, and I say almost because there were a few uh, Americans of color who had access to these programs, but the vast majority of them were only given to white Americans. And that was because, you know, they would stratify it based on uh, occupation. And a lot of uh, the occupations that they didn't cover were predominantly uh, worked by people of color. But what I was interested in was how you know, this housing segregation, how redlining and blockbusting, how once we kind of understand that as at least a starting point for wealth inequality, because, you know, uh, you can kind of see the the first really large boom in, in, uh, in wealth accumulation of average middle class Americans is after World War II uh, during the suburban sprawl and people are able to, you know, get a house of their own and they're able to build wealth as a family. But that was, you know, vastly, vastly only uh, provided, or only, sorry, only, uh, you know, allowed access uh, to white Americans. And so that has created this gigantic uh, wealth gap that has, uh, you know, grown over time and has shifted and shaped so much of our political and social identity as a country. And it's something that a lot of, uh, white people specifically do not understand at a foundational level how that works. For me personally, I was able to read this and say, this is what I'm able to understand as a starting point to explain to people, uh, you know, especially, you know, white people specifically who do not or at least uh, fail to try to understand why these problems are. You know, they, they look at the problem and, and they see it as a problem, but they, they do not um, look to understand the the root of that inequity, just that it, it, it is happening. And so once I was able to kind of take one specific thing and say, this is something that I think that I um, am able to learn more about and, uh, you know, in some sense, um, understand and grow my knowledge on to kind of create um, a broader picture of uh, inequality, at least in one aspect, because there are just so many aspects and it's systemic, you know, it, it there's such a broad range of issues, but this one specific thing had caught my attention, and then I started to look at uh, research on why the middle class is shrinking, and you know it was uh, largely towards corporations lobbying for deregulation into industries such as healthcare and housing, and so you have a flattening and an un unregulation of the banking system that allowed for predatory banking uh, and, and certain terrible practices that we continue to have today, but what you had seen from the 1970s was that, you know, when you used to be able to work a minimum wage job and provide for your family and still get an education and these things were were um, able to happen without a person going into hundreds of thousand dollars in debt and, you know, losing their home from a medical bill, you see from the 1970s to now, uh, since then, we've had, um, you know, people spend, I think, the same amount or less uh, adjusted for inflation on 
food and clothing and luxury items like vacations, things that we, we think of as sort of, um, you know, extra extravagance. Um, when most people like to think that, you know, people are just spending so much money and that, you know, this is people need to penny pinch. No, it's that over that time period, we've seen an increase of 200 to 300% in housing prices and uh, healthcare costs. And so since the 1970s, the wages have stayed the same. Uh, they've been stagnant, uh, but the dwelling prices and the healthcare costs uh, have rapidly, rapidly increased at a pace that has just not kept up. And the same thing has happened with production or productivity levels and then the wages of average workers. And so I had kind of looked at that and thought, okay, you know, now, you know, I was, uh, I was really interested in inequality uh, in the wealth gap as it pertained to housing inequality. And now I'm learning more about inequality that has started to stem from, uh, you know, lobbying and corruption uh, at the highest levels of our government that has allowed, you know, during the Reagan administration and the Clinton administration to kind of give free reign to markets uh, to sell these these terrible uh, products to consumers that have created a system where, you know, the majority of Americans uh, live paycheck to paycheck. Look at, you know, what at least was happening politically and economically back then and then what has happened now. Um, just really fascinated me into what has happened and, and maybe, you know, how how we can fix it. So you're far enough now within social relations and policy that you have a pretty firm grip on the concepts and you're pretty well established in the department in James Madison College as a social relations and policy major. You're starting to probably go down that track where it becomes less about the work you're doing in the classroom and more about the work you're doing outside of the classroom so, like, what does your daily life look like in this degree? Because I can imagine at this point, you're starting to venture off into side projects or possibly into just your own research. What kind of other work on the side that relates to your degree are you doing? At the beginning of the semester, I had uh, decided to add uh, an independent study on top of that, which allowed me to talk to a specific professor about sponsoring work that I wanted to do independently. Uh, and then create a curriculum and create a course that pertains to what I'm studying uh, and therefore, you know, able to, you know, write a paper and, and do whatever. So uh, specifically, I was very interested in the history of radicalism and extremism on Michigan State's campus. And I won't get into the specifics as much, but, you know, as you can look into the history of extremism, uh, especially college campuses in the history of um, American conservatism as it pertains to its view on higher education and how there is this, um, you know, kind of anti-intellectual, uh, I wouldn't even say stigma. It is this anti-intellectual movement that has come out of the new conservative uh, movement of the 60s and 70s of William F. Buckley that say that, you know, professors are brainwashing you, that higher institution is specifically for liberals and that, you know, they're trying to take away your freedom of speech by, you know, saying that you can't say offensive terms and, and things like this. And it has created this sort of combative um, force on college campuses of predominantly white students who feel like their, <laughs> their way of life, their ability to, you know, 
act in a way, uh, you know, I, I'm not particularly sure what they really want to get at. You know, what what is it that you want to say offensive things and then to not be yelled at? It, it's not like people are, you know, there there isn't this to not be held accountable for your actions. Exactly, like you know, <laughs> yeah. it's confusing at least for for some respects. I see. You know, there's this coded language that they use that you see time and time again um, by you know radical extremists or just people that. Um, you know, are going down the path of radical extremism um, that mirrors a lot of fascist statements. Um, it's incredibly xenophobic. It's uh, nationalistic. It's jingoistic. Uh, and so that's at least what I'm interested in is how those kind of seemingly uh, tame ideas that you kind of see can really be um, evolved into something really violent and really, uh, really hurtful. Uh, and, and so I was able to kind of take what I was interested in uh, which is um, one specific instance on our college campus uh, and which was extremely um, hateful and extremely um, important in the, the the discourse at the time. It was, it was very uh, popular and talked about uh, and how that, you know, came about and how those parallels of, of their formation of extremism can be um, reflected onto, you know, things that are happening today. Right. That's wonderful that you have the opportunity to explore that within a class. You know what I mean? Like the fact that you get to write that as as something for your credit. Like that's an extremely... I can't imagine like... Well, especially because I guess you're not directly critiquing Michigan State University, but you're critiquing something that happened under their watch. The ability that you still have the freedom to do that is really cool. I think that it can create, uh, or at least what I hope to create is a little bit of perspective and context about how, uh, you know, even some of our own practices at our college and some of the things that we let slide or some of the things that we, um, you know, consider just, uh, you know, normal or, you know, fringe, maybe contrarian views of some students that that we kind of, um, I wouldn't say now celebrate, but we just allow to, to manifest and, and to kind of um, grow. It's one of the things that I really love about this independent study is that for me as a nerd, I really like spending time like looking through archives. I think archives is like one of my favorite things to, to do. I just love um, looking through historical uh, either data, documents, uh, newspapers, anything. And so what, what it's allowed me to do is kind of comb through spending hours at um, not, you know, in person right now at the MSU libraries, but the MSU Special Collections team has been amazing. They're a spectacular uh, group at Michigan State Libraries. Uh, if you haven't, you know, checked them out, I absolutely recommend it. Uh, and what they've been able to allow me to do is to search through their online database of resources and request certain things, and they'll send them to me. Or, you know, I'm able to, uh, you know, go through. Um, that's the Special Collections unit at the library. I'm able to, you know, comb through. Um, the Historical Association, the archives at Michigan State, uh, and kind of create this, this broader uh, picture of what was happening. And then I'm also able to uh, send Freedom of Information Act requests to the school about things that, you know, I think that, that they either um, failed to talk about for intentional purposes or things that maybe they just tried to sweep under the rug. Um, so there's so many things that you can do when you're, you're looking to do research or study a specific thing. Um, there are so many different resources and things that you can embrace, uh, especially at Michigan State and James Madison, that I, I just really enjoy taking advantage of. It's really fun. <laughs> my, my next question result revolves around the idea of like, 
why MSU? Like, why did you come here? And like, what about James Madison College in particular gave you that advantage and that unique opportunity that you wouldn't find somewhere somewhere else? But it already seems like you've kind of covered the majority of that. I mean, you're in a residential college of everybody with similar interests. Like, that's rare. Your ability to access all of these records that you probably normally wouldn't be able to access. Your independent study isn't like one of those like <laughs> lax independent studies that you do for like a credit filler. Like, you you might publish something. I don't want to trigger your existential dread, dread or anything, oh, it's but triggering. the last question we have is, in an ideal <laughs> yeah. world, what would you want to do with your degree? Oh, I have no idea. Like, like literally none. Like, it's kind of terrifying at this point. Like, I should know because so many people are like, oh, I want to do something. Not a single clue, which should give at least a little bit of reassurance to some people. It doesn't even have to be like an uber pragmatic thing. I mean, this is like you have unlimited funding, unlimited resources, unlimited team of the smartest people in the country about whatever it is you want to do. Like, what what do you want to do with it? If you could do anything, passion project. You know, I think that I would love to be able to continue learning and to continue, you know, expanding, uh, a, you know, a foundation of, of knowledge about things that I, I really find interesting, at least to myself. Uh, so if I could someday... Um, become a professor or kind of teach things that I think are important to understanding our current political system. Um, and it's something that I, I wish that I could kind of create a bridge towards this sort of um, very uh, nitty gritty cut and dry public policy aspect of uh, political issues and bridge it with, um, you know, social relations, uh, social theory, uh, how identities and groups have changed over time. I think that there's there's the ability to put those two together in ways that, uh, at least for myself, I haven't found yet. And maybe that's not something I'll do. But um, you know, to to be able to to teach and to grow into academia, uh, academia, academia, uh, you know, maybe you know, as a uh, you know, looking into to teaching, or um, you know, writing or something like that. Um, but but I don't know. I, I think for a long time I really did want to do radio. I wanted to to kind of um, do this sort of um, auditory storytelling about these issues. And that's something that I might want to come back to if I'm ever given the opportunity. Because um, I think there's always going to be a, a, a place in my heart for public radio and storytelling. When I got into the independent study, a lot of what I was doing was like understanding or looking over... Um, research at the Southern Poverty Law Center and their hate watch and, and sort of their, um, you know, uh, practice of identifying hateful ideologies and something like that. And at least uh, for myself and my interest in like online extremism, I thought that I have a pretty good understanding of a lot of the, um, maybe not understanding, but a, a good ability to identify extremist and um, violent and destructive, uh, specifically white supremacist radicalism online that I think a lot of people, um, and myself especially, look over. Maybe that's something that I could get into. And there's so many people who do great readings about this, like Andrew Morantz, uh, Angela Nagel, uh, Talia Lavin. Like they, there are people that I look up to as like awesome, you know, people that have, um, you know, dive in uh, and kind of jumped into these underground um, you know, uh, these online dark web corners of the internet. Um, so, you know, that's something that I think I'm, I really, uh, am interested in, but you know, 
that's also depressing. So <laughs> maybe I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it'd be really kind of hard to like steward that shit professionally. Like it'd be kind of hard to separate. Oh yeah, it all. it's difficult, especially because I have really bad OCD, and so uh, part of my brain, and by part I mean the majority, is obsession. And so I'm I when I got into the independent study, I was obsessing over collecting as much. Uh, evidence online before uh, it was taken down because part of uh, the stuff that I am trying to capture like screen grab and, and to save are stuff that has previously been scrubbed and wiped from the internet and so like what I was doing at the beginning was like really spending hours at a time digging into these extremely hateful uh, corners of our um, internet and you know as much as I was interested in learning more about it it does really get to you and it, it, it makes you sad and it makes you angry. I, I think a lot of people get like disturbed. I don't really get disturbed without him reading. I get really angry. I have a, a very, very deep, deep hatred um, for the people at the top of these white supremacist groups that have just destroyed communities, destroyed people's lives over um, you know using people who are vulnerable uh, into creating them into these um, you know, just zombies of hate and um, misinformation. And so at least when I do a lot of this, as much as I'm interested in it, it really makes me mad. And it really, it just, it, it creates this sort of like um, bubble of sadness around me sometimes, this, this sort of idea that like, you know, it, it's just anger inducing. Um, so that's something that I really have to juggle with as I, as I continue. Well, I think that's everything. Thank you so much for being on. Is, is there anything you'd like to plug before we sign off? I don't think so. I'm in uh, the Spartan Solidarity Network, which is a really awesome organization that grew out of uh, the Students for Bernie Sanders group. And we advocate for uh, higher wages uh, for Michigan State uh, staff, uh, workers at MSU, especially uh, after COVID. Um, uh, we are looking into um, you know, organizing these members, uh, creating um, solidarity amongst people who especially by MSU have been screwed over, um, you know, understanding and um, joining forces with a lot of these people and creating um, this this broad network of, of, I know I keep saying solidarity between these groups that, you know, uh, you know, need uh, a sort of uh, driving force to kind of uh, organize. And so that's something that I'm, I'm really uh, looking forward uh, to doing more. And also, uh, I'm on the James Madison Senate. So uh, we've been able to um, pass a bunch of resolutions. And uh, we're currently looking into now, um, you know, asking MSU to, to create a committee to look into uh, maybe changing the name of James Madison College, decolonizing the curriculum. I've heard a little bit about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was, um, you know, it was something that, that came up over the summer and was kind of a, a hotbed piece um, especially on social media uh, among James Madison students, uh, specifically conservatives. Uh, and actually that that conversation is what uh, an argument from that conversation had sparked um, the research that I'm doing. Uh, and so there's a lot of things that I uh, hope this year and, and next year um, with the Senate and with Spartan Solidarity Network, we're able to, to you know, move forward, uh, you know, divesting, uh, you know, demanding MSU divest um, from fossil fuel companies. Um, uh, I, there's just a, a, an unbelievable list of tasks that we could, you know, get for. And I, I just like working with these people. I think that um, all of them are um, 100% smarter than myself. Like, they are unbelievably impressive. Um, 
extremely nice, extremely helpful. Uh, they are just kind people that I enjoy spending time with. Uh, if you ever, um, you know, are able to uh, join uh, Senate or, you know, um, come and hang out at uh, our meetings when they're in person, I guess they could join the Zoom meeting as well. Um, but I just think that uh, all the people uh, in that group and then in Spartan Solidarity, Solidarity Network has really, uh, I just made so many friends and I, I love them all. And I just, I really enjoy it. All right. I'll put your socials in the bio so people can reach out to you if they sure. want to come to the meeting. Sure. Kind of thing. Well, thank awesome. you so much for yeah, being on, it. Jack. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm really you know happy to do it. Underground Undergrad is an original podcast through the state news, written and produced by me, Case DeConing. Are you a current MSU undergrad with an unusual degree? Follow the link in the description to potentially be featured on this podcast. 